Thank you for joining the Bevel Talk, Season 3, Episode 4. Pipe fabrication leader Team Industries has to stay on the cutting edge to go above and beyond for their customers. Learn how they adapt to new code changes and new technologies. Let's get right into it. Welcome back to Bevel Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Again, we're joined with Tim Monday from Team Industries. You know, Tim, we left off talking a lot about um, trends in the marketplace, what's going on, what you guys are seeing in industry as a code body member, but also in welding and heating. So let's take a little bit deeper dive into the welding and heating part of the codes. What trends are you seeing? How have you guys adapted to changes in technology at Team Industries? Well, I think when it comes to codes in general or even technology, one of the things that we find somewhat frustrating at times is our clients' ability to adapt to those new technologies. Uh, Very often, the clients have come up with a pre-established set of specifications. It takes a huge amount of effort for them to change those. And so as a result, a lot of the new technologies that we see that we think we could benefit from are are prohibited or they just don't know enough about it to allow it in their project. So it's, it's, it's really a challenge to sell it to our clients. So I, I often make the joke kind of tongue-in-cheek that technology is 25 years ahead of industry, and industry is 25 years ahead of code, and how do we combat that? How do we, how do we adapt to that? Just a, just a comment with regards to code. Um, you, you know, if the criticism is, is that the code doesn't keep up with technology, I would say that it's deliberate. You have to remember that everything that goes in the code has to have something that's well-proven, a good track record. And, and if it doesn't, if it doesn't have a long period of time to evaluate whether or not that new technology works and does service or provides the safety level that is expected of the code committees, then they can't really put it in there until they've seen that proven out. And so it does, it's deliberate that it takes that long. The other part is, is that, you, you know, you, you're dealing with a, a huge amount of experience on code committee. And each one of these people who are reviewing the proposed changes, perhaps the inclusion of new technologies, are looking at that and, and thinking, well, you know, I remember when this happened or this happened. And they have a wealth of experience that they draw from to say, no, I don't think that this is what we should allow just yet. I want to see more time. I want to see some more demonstration that it will work properly. Right. Well, and I think it's 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 important to recognize that and understand that. It's not just that, that codes, are they don't care about technology, but really what we're trying to do and what codes and standards are for is, is for safety and then for service life to be able to extend or maintain service life. So we know what to expect from a, a product or, or a piece of equipment that's put together. Um, so how do you guys at Team... With that being said about codes and standards, how do you guys adapt with new and changing technology in welding and heating? Well, I would say that one of the, the probably the biggest change in heating technology is probably induction. Induction has been a, a great tool for us, but what we've seen, and, and this is again one of those things that I've been exposed to as a result of being part of code committee, is a lot of studies that have been carried out with regards to heating, in this case, particularly um, induction heating. And one of the things that we're finding is that there's a, a, the gradient, the temperature gradient through the wall thickness as well as longitudinally direction of the, of the pipe is pretty steep because you can heat so fast with induction. 
You know, we have electric resistance. Typically, you bring the temperature of that material up at a slower pace. With induction, you can get it up very quickly. And so as a result, you have a huge temperature gradient between where you're heating and right next to it that has no heating. Now, I know that Miller has done some studies on this, and they've actually done some, I think El Cheryl's done some, some studies on that and uh, written some white papers on it. And this is, this is kind of the, some of the, the input that we on Code Committee need because uh, right now I have the opposite. I have people who are doing studies, heat treatment studies, that are really kind of concerned about that whole temperature gradient and how quickly we're heating. We've been employing induction heating, and the concerns that I have, that I see when we're using it, is really two. First of all, we do some induction preheating. But what I see is, again, the ability to heat so quickly, the temperature dissipates about as quickly as it heats because you have this heat sink that draws away from it, right? So uh, a welder will put the induction heating element on there, and he'll put the temp stick on there right after that to say, oh, yep, it's up at temperature. And then he'll start welding. Well, in the meantime, just from the time that, that he's put the temp stick on, and the time that he's getting his welding gear ready and he's going to start his weld, the temperature may have dropped below the minimum preheat temperatures. So that's a concern that you have to watch out for, which means really you have to be heating for a wider area and a, a, a larger area than where you're actually going to be welding. Those are all important things. And I think it takes time to understand how induction heating works, how heating works, how the heat sink works, to be able to recognize and, and overcome and adapt in your shop to make sure that you're doing it correctly. Right. The other, the other part that's uh, probably a concern uh, of mine is that – so uh, it's very regimented when you come to electric resistance heating – with regards to thermocouples, the placement of thermocouples and how you're measuring it, right? And when, when you measure that temperature, it, depending on where you're measuring that temperature, it's either giving you a good reading or a bad reading. For an example, let, let's say that I have a huge flange that's welded on to the end of a pipe. I have a butt weld between this flange. as a weld neck flange and a, and a pipe. And you're heating that area right by the, the weld, all right? Or in the case of post-weld heat treat, Right? You're, you're tre- heat treating that weld. Well, if I, put a, if I put one thermocouple on right on the top of the weld, what will I get? Right? How, what about the heat affected zone towards the flange? Do you think that that re- reached post-weld heat treat temperatures? Right. You have to be able to verify and make sure that it did. Right. So when we use electric resistance, we have numerous control thermocouples. But when we're induction heating, we only have one control thermocouple. Right? So... It becomes difficult because if you think about the zones and how you heat with induction, you have wraps around it that you're wrapping around the the weld. What happens is is that depending on where I put that thermocouple, which is, you know, anybody who's really understanding what's going on, you're going to put more than one thermocouple on there. Absolutely. It's it's recommended to use, you know, 12, 3, 6, 9 o'clock at a minimum. Well, it, it is, but it doesn't say you have to do that, right? Right. See, so, and it depends on whether you go by D1010, you know, the requirements of D1010 heating or, you know, what is the client specifying? Right. And most of the time they don't say anything. So uh, somebody could just put one thermocouple on at the top of the weld and, and they would have no idea what happened to the rest of the weld. 
right? But heat sinks, and, and it's really easy when you have one butt weld that's pipe to pipe, and, and there's no heat sinks. It's, that's straightforward. You can, you can center the, the coils right on top of the weld, and there's no problem. The problem really comes in is when all of these heat sinks, whether it's a branch connection or it's a, it's a, you know, a pipe support that's welded on or there's a flange, all of those things have a huge effect on how it's heated. And remember, right, why are we doing post-well heat treat? Right? We're conditioning not only the weld metal but also the heat-affected zone. There's a very important part of it is that we're conditioning the heat-affected zone, right? Right. I think it's it's very interesting um, your thoughts and and what you're thinking and how and how your thought process is because a lot of people that aren't familiar with heating or aren't familiar with codes or aren't familiar with with welding in general they'll think oh yeah there, there's my temperature all the way through all the way around I'm good to go yeah. and really understanding heating in general not just induction not just induction not just resistance heating but how does heating work? Why do we heat? What does it do when we preheat? What does it do when we post-weld heat treat? What what are the benefits of that? What if we go out of spec? And why it's important is is critical to to a successful operation. Sure. Sure. And I mean, you think about the, you know, we say stress relieving, right? Right. So what are we doing when we're stress relieving, right? So, so uh, obviously, whenever you have molten metal that solidifies, you're going to be imposing shrinking. Right, mm-hmm. and that's going to be happening at a very localized level. So as it shrinks, you're going to impose all of these internal stresses that are in the weld. Right. Um, the other thing is, is that you you know you want to condition you 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 uh, raise the temperature in the heat affected zone, and you quickly cool it off. Right. Well, if you think about all the processes that steel is made from, right, and how it's made, what happens is is that we we have to Heat it up, we, we form whatever it is that we're making with, say, pipe, and we cool it off, but we could cool it off controlled. We temper it, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you, have to, you have to bring it, you, you, you first bring it up to this very high temperature where you're forming it, you bring it back down, now you have to bring it back up, temper it, and then bring it back down, right? Well, the same thing happens in weld, right? And the heat-affected zone is untempered, so we have to temper it. And that's what the that's what we're doing. We're conditioning that the heat affected zone as well as the weld metal, right? So we're te- we're tempering it, but we're also relieving stress, right? So how do we relieve stress? We raise the temperature until the the uh, yield point drops. And so as as we raise the temperature, we meet the yield point, and it yields. In other words, gives, and it relieves the pressure. The te- the uh, stress is within the weld, and then they can lower it back down. The XMT350 Field Pro with Polarity Reversing Welding System from Miller. Let's welders change polarity and processes with the push of a button at the stick, TIG remote, or wire feeder, eliminating the need to walk back to the power source to swap leads to change polarity. Learn more at MillerWelds.com slash ArcReach. The science behind heating is something that just amazes me, how much we know and how much we can do. To make sure that a weld or a joint or a configuration will do what it's designed to do and intended to do. Um, but how, when misunderstood or misused, it can be detrimental to an entire project. Yep. So, uh, you know, and maybe this would be a, probably a good time to lead into to some of the newer materials that have been being used. Right. Know? How how do you guys adapt to, to light weighting and high strength steels um, in what you're doing? Yeah. So high strength steels typically... 
You know, it's like the higher carbon content and that kind of thing will require much higher preheat temperatures, right? So um, you usually, you know, on the higher strength materials, we're usually at the 3, 350, you know, for a preheat. Now, when we get into P91s, now this is primarily in the power market. So that's uh, P9 chrome. Um, but the, the difference in P9, for example, and P91 is the, is the structure, the granular structure of the material. So it's primarily martensite uh, on, on P91. And because of that grain structure, it requires uh, very careful heat treatment, very careful. So an example, we talked about improper heating. You had mentioned improper heating. One of the concerns that we have with uh, P91 is that the post-well heat treat temperature is very close to the lower critical temperature. So the lower critical temperature is where basically um, the grain structure changes, right? So we don't want to give get above that lower critical temperature because we want to retain the the grain structure that's there, but we want to refine it, right? So and temper it. So to, to do that, we have to work in a very narrow zone. So typically, you're at about 1470 for lower critical temperature, and you're usually at 1420, be, you know, 1375 to 1420 for post-well heat treat temperature. So there's not a lot of room between the upper end of the post-well heat treat temperature and the lower critical temperature. Right. So what has happened is, is that uh, in the early days when they were employing a lot of this P91, they were running into all kinds of problems because they were the local post-well heat treating it. Um, they didn't have a lot of thermocouples on it, and they had heat sinks. So, for example, I've seen examples where they had an OLED, you know, an integrally reinforced uh, branch connection, mm-hmm. OLED, right, that they welded on, and so they were heat treating that weld. And what they did is they put a couple of thermocouples on there on the actual weld for the OLED. Um, so the problem is, is that right above that was the thin wall pipe that welded right to the OLED. And so when they heated it up, they put no thermocouples on there. So what do you think happened to this thin wall pipe that was welding to the OLED? It got overheated, went over the lower critical temperature. And what Coates says is, says, you know, if, uh, if you go above the lower critical temperature, you have to treat it like P9, not P91. Well, the stress allowables for P91 are much higher than P9. So I'd seen where um, there's big bulges in the pipe just above the OLED where it, the mechanical properties of that material were ruined as a result of overheating. Yeah. It, again, I, you, you can't stress it enough that it, heating is such a science and an art form. Um, anything you can do to make it easier and understand it better is is critical to to success in heating and post well heat treatment. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We spend <laughs> we spend a lot of time in code committee just discussing those issues because they're so critical. And you know, we talk about you know the slow adoption of uh, code to technologies. P ninety one was one of those technologies, right? And it presented such a huge advantage to the manufacturers. And to the and to the owners, to use P ninety one because thinner wall, lighter loads on the pipe supports, less welding to do, and longer life. You know they could run at higher temperatures. All of those things. There's a real advantage, a real push to use P ninety one over, for example, the typical chromes that you would see the P nine, P five, you know, P twenty two type stuff. So when they did that, though, um, they really they wanted to to adopt it, but found out about some of these issues and 
they didn't get the safeguards in there right away, right? Because they just didn't know, right? So it's it's a it's a process. The the problem was is that it wasn't that the material wasn't good. The material's good. It's just the knowledge of the people handling it had to be increased. Right. Well, I think you think about it, how many hundreds and thousands of miles and hundreds of thousands of miles have been put down of P91 now versus when it was first put out and how much data we have now versus then. And experience. I mean, experience really leads to expertise, right? And and how we handle it, how we deal with it has evolved as we've learned how to put it into service safely. Yeah. So. And, and that, that's true. And, and I think every day, I mean, and EPRI is is the electric. It's it's their research body, um, so everybody kind of chips into to EPRI. The Electric Power Research Institute is is the name of it, and uh, they have done huge amounts of research on on the welding of P ninety one, and and they've brought a lot of information to the code committee as well as to industry. Join us next time as Tim and I talk more about how welders at team and welders in general have adapted to these high-strength steels um, and new technology and processes in welding.